Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Microbe Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess, and today we are joined by the founder of Binning Singletons, Joe James. This is a very special interview. Joe specializes in mentorship. And he also created this amazing organization called Binning Singletons, aiming to create a community around scientific conferences. Now, if you've never been to a scientific conference, they can be very overwhelming. Think of it like going to a party that you don't know anyone who's there, except the party has thousands of people in it and they all have higher degrees than you do. It quickly seems like everyone has their lives figured out that they are in their careers that they love. These conferences can be breeding grounds for imposter syndrome. They can be moments where early career scientists can feel like they don't belong, right? These are extremely stressful situations for people who are introverts, for people who are new, for people who don't have anybody to connect with. A lot of people, including myself, kind of fall into herd mentality. You go where the people are going. You don't follow your heart. Because you don't have anyone supporting you. And let's be honest, we've all been that person before. But what if you didn't have to? Support systems are so vitally important no matter where you are in your career. We talk quite a bit about this in today's episode. Joe James gives us some amazing analogies that will not only give you a crash course in microbiology, but will also allow you to understand what his organization is all about. In the final part of this episode, we talk about mentorship. How do you create it? Who should be a part of it? Are you allowed to be a mentor? We discuss all these questions. So, Microbial Nation, sit back and enjoy because this is a good one. So, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get here? What's your journey? Okay, so I taught high school chemistry for a year way back in the 90s. And I really enjoyed it. But the office politics and like some of the headaches that go with teaching were a lot, um, especially considering the pay. And I remember talking to my dad about it. And he's like, look, you're going to have those things wherever you work. So you should like what you do. And you should also be compensated <laughs> at a level that you um, expect. And so I went back to school and I was in a PhD microbiology program in a med school. It became clear pretty early that my advisor and I had different understandings of work-life balance. Um, so I switched to the biology department after a year and a half, got my master's, well, I finished all my coursework in that one semester, and then um, did my research on seagrass sediments and microbial communities at the Environmental Protection Agency, where I had worked a couple of summers before as a summer student. Eventually, I got a permanent position there, and I've been there for over 20 years. So I have a question about you teaching high school chemistry. Okay. So believe it or not, my favorite high school teacher was my chemistry teacher. And it was because she had so many fun and engaging experiments. Did you do any fun experiments with the kids that you taught? We didn't really do that many that were that great, I didn't think. <laughs> um, so it was I taught AP chemistry and it was a two hour a day class and we had so much material to get through that we barely had time to do labs. And I kind of regret that. I also took over like after a month of student teaching, the teacher I was um, student teaching for retired, which she did strategically. So I would get the job because <laughs> they would be stuck and they would have to hire me, Oh, which was really great. But I also had no time to plan anything. And so I kind of got dropped into three preps 
with no lead time and it was my first job. So it was, it was a lot. (laughs) Oh my, that does sound like a lot. But yeah, AP classes, there really is not a lot of time to do anything. Not until you get past that AP test at the end of the year. And then you have like this month and a half where you don't really do anything except for watch movies and stuff. Right. At least that's what we did. Yeah, I think we made, we did make some snow globes at one point. Oh, that's fun. So we used, you know, some, some chemicals that you add some alcohol into it. So it makes the the white precipitate out. And so that was kind of fun. Um, They enjoyed that, but. Uh, mm-hmm. That was that was one of the more fun ones we did. Um, we d- we did do a few others, but it was it was just hard to get them all in. Yeah, it definitely takes some time, and I'm sure as a teacher, it takes twice as much time as it did for the students to actually set up that experiment. My favorite experiment we did in high school chemistry was we got the opportunity to make ice cream, and one of our homework assignments for that was to bring in anything that we wanted to make in our ice cream. So you had some people bringing cookie dough or, or Oreos. And then, of course, you had some high school boys that decided, you know, it would be good bacon ice cream. I was like, that's gross on so many levels. Yeah, I, I have some family members who love bacon. I am not one of those people. So. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. So this is a question we ask to all of our guests here on the microbe moment. Do you have a favorite microbe inspired food or drink? So my friend runs a brewery called A Little Madness. Oh, I love that name. Out in Pensacola. And he has a Maybach that is amazing. It is my favorite beer, like period. And that is my favorite. It's good that it's a friend then. You get some discounts. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a coworker. He's a biologist. Nice as well and so he his passion is he's been home brewing forever and so the last few years now he's had he and his wife own a brewery brewery Ooh, it's tough, easy for me to say solar powered he's very into sustainability and using like his spent grains and everything to then use for other purposes and so oh cool yeah it's it's a it's a pretty cool deal they got going yeah, it's fun to be the taste tester for some of those before they go wide. Oh, so you actually get to taste test some of the batches? Sometimes. Well, that's cool. Pandemic has made that hard, but yeah, in the past I have. What hasn't the pandemic made harder? Long-term listeners of the show will know that we started homebrewing recently and we taste test it throughout the process. And it doesn't always taste great throughout the time, but it's so interesting to see how the microbes play into the flavor profile of the drink yeah yeah he did a mead once and i can't remember what it was in the secondary he had it on something else i can't remember what it was but it made it like this blood red Ooh, that's exciting mead yeah and it was like it was really cool uh-huh. <laughs> my brother-in-law loved it because he was like all into this viking stuff so it was like you know blood red viking mead <laughs> yeah sounds pretty good it's real strong. <laughs> oh, yeah. Viking me can be very strong. Like homebrew me. Yeah. One time we had a glass, we were knocked out. Yes. Yeah. He also he's also made an ice buck. So they take the, the beer and then they like freeze it. And so the, the water freezes out and then they take what was at the bottom that didn't freeze. And then that becomes the beer. Oh my God. That stuff is like super smooth and it will knock you on your oh, wow. butt. It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty good. So Joe, I want to know, what is your micro moment? Why microbes? 
so an undergrad, I was a biology, pretty much general biology, maybe pre-med, pre-professional kind of biology. Um, I really had no idea what I was going to do, uh, except that I needed a student teach uh, because I added a, a teaching certificate to my biology degree because I had a four-year scholarship and I had finished pretty much all my biology stuff in three and a half years. Oh, wow. And so I added all these education classes the last semester so I could get a teaching certificate. So I knew I was going to do that, but I really didn't know beyond that. And an old friend of ours um, told me about his neighbor who's a microbiologist and he worked for the US EPA, which is a lab. We have, there's a lab in our area and they were hiring summer students, which is a program I think they don't really do much anymore. But back then it was great. You'd get to go for, say, from June through September and just work in a lab and do pretty much whatever they needed. Um, and so I... I did that that one summer and we worked on Lagenidium calinectes, which is an oomycete. Oh, I've never heard of that one. And so it's, it, its growth is fungal-like, but it's actually related to diatoms. Wow, that's weird. Yeah, it's weird. It's this weird thing. And so it, re, it gets in crustaceans and it will replace their muscle fibers with these hyphae-like growths. And eventually, so we did it with, um, with brine shrimp. And you'd watch these little brine shrimp and eventually they'd stop moving so much because you'd look and you'd under a microscope, you'd see that their musculature basically was being replaced by these hyphae. Oh my. And then once it got to a certain point, it would push all of the hyphae out into this little ball on the outside of the shrimp. And then all these zoospores would start forming and you'd see them all moving around inside the sack and then it would burst and all these zoospores would go everywhere and try to find new shrimp to infect. Wow. So it's a huge parasite of the shrimp then? Yeah. Yeah. And it's really in, it's, so it's in blue crabs is the problem. That's why the Kalanectes part comes from. Um, and so it's a, it's a big problem in blue crabs. We use the brine shrimp because they're a lot easier to grow them up fast. So it was really cool to watch. Um, looking at it in the microscope was pretty awesome. And there was a old microbiologist there who did a lot of microscopy and he helped me take some photos of it so I could make some slides when I taught school to show people that. So that was really like kind of what got me hooked. Before that, I was, I was actually kind of ambivalent about micro, <laughs> but that was like, wow, this is pretty awesome. So yeah, that sounds pretty amazing to see. And that whole, that whole summer was really a lesson in a lot of the stuff that I had learned intellectually, but didn't really understand. So like I had to come up with what was the infectious dose of, of these lagenidium to add to the shrimp to get, to get them to infect. And of course, I wasn't thinking until, you know, a guy who'd been there forever kind of took me aside. He's like, hey, remember those things in biology class where if there's enough of a thing, it'll just grow vegetatively. But if it starts to like become stressed or there's less of it, it'll start to reproduce sexually. And he's like, that's what the zoospores are. And so I was like, oh, I've been adding too much of this to get proper infections. And then I reduced the amount and suddenly everything was infected. It's like, oh, right. That actually works. (laughs) Wow, Joe, that's so exciting. Never heard of that before, but I can definitely see how that can become easily your micro moment. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. What a special micro moment. Yeah. So I I came back, I came back and worked with the same guy uh, the next year and we worked on some different stuff. Then we we looked at some Vibrio, Parahemolyticus and a few other things. Um, Kind of, you know, when you work for the EPA, you work on whatever the, you know, basically whatever the government has a priority on. So it kind of changes all the time. So I did, you know, did different stuff from summer to summer, but it was, it was still pretty cool. So I want to get into binning singletons here in a minute, but first I, I noticed on your website, you had this phrase to describe yourself as 
being too weird to be credible. And I love this. I totally relate to it. But I was wondering if you could just describe this a little bit. What does this mean? Yeah. So when we wrote the article for Benning Singletons um, for Msphere back from our experience in 2019 at ASM Microbe in San Francisco, our reviewer number one was really complimentary and really seemed to get what we were talking about. And they really liked our metaphor of singletons. And they noted that in some pipelines, singletons are tossed for being too weird to be credible. And it might be worth bridging back to the idea of imposter syndrome, where people self-toss themselves if they are a singleton. And so we love this. We like the way it was just written perfectly. And so we kind of took that and we put it on the back of some t-shirts that we made. So we had our our logo on the front. And then on the back, we had too weird to be credible reviewer number one, (laughs) Um, which of course the reviewer wasn't saying that we were too weird to be credible, but we just really loved, we just really loved the way it was said. And, and we kind of latched onto it. And I think I know who reviewer number one was, but of course I am not actually allowed to know. And I I cannot confirm that it's them, but uh, yeah, they, they, they helped us out. (laughs) Yeah. I like that. It is unknown though. Just reviewer number one. (laughs) It's nice. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Binning Singletons, this brainchild of yours. Yeah. So back in 2018 uh, at ASM Microbe in Atlanta, some friends and I were having dinner and I was just commenting about how great it was to have people to go out to eat with and, and some new people that I didn't know before that came with us. And so I got to meet some new people. And it really got the conversation going on like what didn't go right sometimes when we went to these meetings and what could have helped. And so I thought back to 2013 to ASM in Denver. So I changed my focus at the agency several times by then. And I'd only been one other time since 2007. So most of my cohort was gone. And the ones that were there really weren't working on the same thing I was anymore. And so I found myself following somebody live tweeting a talk. I was in the talk and I was like, wow, they're saying really great things because they were not only just saying what the speaker was saying, but they made some comments as well. Oh, my God. I admire those people so much. Like, not only are they listening to this talk, but they're also interjecting their own opinions in a live chat. Like, I I can barely even sit there and comprehend what they're saying. Never mind tweeting, typing and thinking my own thoughts at the same time. So if you're one of those people like good for you. Yeah, it, it was, it was phenomenal. So I kind of looked around the room and I found them typing. And so when they got up to leave, to go to a different thing, I kind of like snuck out and followed them. And I kind of just walked up was like, Hey, can you please give me 15 or 20 minutes? You seem to know what you're talking about. And we want to get into that. And we don't know what we're doing. Instead, they took me to, to coffee for an hour and they really helped me out with pretty much anything I asked and then invited me to a tweet up lunch where I met some really, really great people, including uh, Dr. Hillary Lappin Scott, who is the FEMS president. And so these folks that were at that lunch kind of became the seed culture for my microbial community, microbiology. How do we say this? My microbiology community. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're not my microbial community, right? Because they're not microbes. Um, And so back to Atlanta, that, that night where we were kind of talking about this ended up being very late, but like, all day Sunday, I just kind of kept thinking about it and making notes. And these metaphors kind of just stuck in my head for what I would like to do. And so like step one was identify the singletons. And so kind of we alluded to earlier, some DNA pipelines, analysis pipelines, when you're looking at like 16S data or whatever, if a sequence appears only once, it's a singleton. 
And some some pipelines remove all singletons just like right off the bat. And of course, this can reduce errors because most sequencing errors are in the singletons, but most singletons are actually not errors, right? So you're throwing away a lot of good data when mm-hmm. you do that. And so the analogy to me of somebody coming to a meeting alone and feeling like they were just being thrown out with all the errors, right? Instead of being kept like, hey, no, you're valuable, you're worth it. And so that really was kind of a short leap to make that metaphor. And so then, of course, the next step is bin the singletons. So that's where binning singletons comes from. Which is another bioinformatics concept. Right. Yeah. The concept that um, you take sequences that are, you bend them together based on a criteria. So you say, maybe if there's two base pairs difference, we're going to bin these all together. And so what we do in a group of singletons usually is we have like two to four people. We try to group them by similar fields and we try to mix the levels of experience. So maybe an undergrad, maybe a PhD student, maybe a postdoc. And then we give all those people a mentor to act kind of like a meeting coach. And so we make those matches ahead of the meeting and then the participants get to know each other. And then they have a cohort like from the beginning of the meeting. So they have people to grab coffee with, um, go to talks. You're not by yourself and you can just kind of get there like kind of like a how do I how do I even say this it's like a pre-made cohort that you can yeah that you can start with yeah I love this idea then we use the concept of horizontal gene transfer or horizontal transfer so in (laughs) in bacteria you know bacteria often share genes among themselves um, despite not being descended from the same ancestor and so that's horizontal (laughs) gene transfer and so the end result is an organism and eventually population that gains a functionality that didn't arise from evolution, but it's valuable anyway. And so this was kind of what we were going for with our mentors and our singletons and even our singletons with one another. We wanted the singletons to benefit from what the mentors had already learned, but we also wanted the singletons to exchange things between each other because their experience is just going to be different and they're going to maybe help somebody who hasn't been through something before. And so the next step was quorum sensing, which of course in bacteria, really is talking about when bacterial cells regulate gene expression in response to changes in cell density. It's a little different for bending singletons. We kind of took the name and made our own quorum. Um, and it well, just, quorum sensing did come from the legal industry. So right, <laughs> it went from society into microbiology and you're just bringing it back to society. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so this was to kind of help people feel like something bigger. And then they could kind of like find their own people, so to speak. So like we would pre-group people, but, you know, we're not omniscient. Like we don't know who's really going to be friends or not. And so when you get all the different groups together, people can kind of mix and match and be like, oh, yeah, I like these two people that I was matched with originally. But, oh, wow, I like these five people over here in these different groups. And then, of course, the mentors, having spent some time with their singletons, can be like, oh, hey, you need to go meet this guy who is another mentor or this lady, um, or this person and say, Hey, you know, they're interested in these kinds of things. And that's what you specialize in. Maybe you guys should meet. And that was just the idea of like, you know, helping them grow this pool of people to socialize with, which is to me, like the most crucial part of these meetings, because you can keep up with a lot of science on the papers. You know, you don't necessarily have to go to a meeting to do that. But to get that interaction with people and create those networks and some of those resources you're going to need later, really, that's to me, that's what the meeting gives you. And so, of course, the last was exponential growth, which bacterial cultures that describes when bacteria in favorable, favorable conditions double their numbers rapidly. So in the context of binning singletons, we just 
say it's when the singleton of a larger network and the support mentor and the low anxiety, they can really start to thrive. So that's that's kind of the idea. And we joke, we, we often, when we were writing this up, the shorthand amongst ourselves was that the singletons know how to meeting <laughs> as, if, as if meeting were a verb. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're going to teach people how to meeting because it seems like its own skill, right? Like, yeah, it's definitely its own skill. Right. Like being a good scientist, even being an extrovert, none of that necessarily makes you good at meetings. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, just navigating even the virtual platform was challenging. Never mind having to be face to face in a giant conference room with thousands of other people. Right. And it can help. But if you if you learn how to meeting, so to speak, then you really are going to get more out of these kinds of large. Yeah, things. I love the analogy. I love the whole thing. I love the concept. And Joe, you just gave us a little crash course in microbiology there, too. You not only told us what your organization is, but you did it in teaching basically micro 101. So uh, that's pretty cool. So I know you started Binning Singletons in 2018, which means you had about one meeting in 2019 before the pandemic. And we all faced a lot of challenges during the pandemic, but I like to look at silver linings. So I was wondering if you could tell us one challenge and one silver lining that the pandemic has brought to Binning Singletons. Yeah, so we were really, really sad, obviously, in 2020. We had, a, we had an MOU with um, ASM. So we, when we ran it the first time, we were kind of like this rogue op and we kind of did our own thing completely grassroots and just we just decided to do it asm took notice and in 2020 we had an mou with them i had gotten some sponsorship money and you know asm was going to give us a tower like at the reception just like they do for all the different tracks we were going to have these uh daily what what, be, what basically were the community corners in the in the world microbe forum but they were going to be these these daily little meetings where we could have presentations throughout the conference and they were going to um, support us with a uh, mixer on that first night. So a lot of the things that we had to kind of, you know, scrape together with our very little amount of money um, the first time, they were going to help us out with some of that. And so we were very excited. It was in Chicago. My wife's family is from Chicago. So we were going to drop the kids off and just do, we were going to go all in. And of course, it didn't happen. So that was, that was very disappointing. But as a silver lining, we were able to, we were going to, you know, we had another MOU with ASM for 2021. Of course, that didn't happen either, but they did ask us to participate in the World Microbe Forum. So that was kind of a shift because we always have, in the past, it's always really been focused on that person-to-person in real-life interaction when you're at a meeting. And so for, for the World Microbe Forum, we really kind of had to change a lot of our viewpoints on things. So we didn't necessarily group people together in small groups, we really just kind of like had one big group and allowed people to participate as much as they'd like. So we had a Slack channel, people talked to each other on Twitter, and it really kind of helped us to understand how we could help people even if we weren't physically in the same space. So we put together our, um, our itineraries, we shared the posters and the talks that singletons and, um, and mentors were giving. And that I think was really helpful. It kind of helped us hopefully going forward to be able to build on that once we get back to in real life meetings. 
So how has Binning Singletons grown over the years? Have you found the virtual platform to diminish your, your efforts or has it grown even despite the pandemic? So with the virtual, we actually had more participants than we did in our original in real life one back in 2019. Of course, we've had, you know, since then two years that people now know we exist. And, you know, and it being supported by ASM as an official thing, you know, we had an official curated itinerary. We had an MOU with them. We hosted five community corners at the World Microbe Forum. Um, they gave us an hour to to discuss what Bending Singletons was um, on the first day as an intro. So I think all that helped us to grow quite a bit more. I think we doubled what we had, uh, doubled the number of participants that we had in our in our first in real life one back in 2019. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think we actually would have done much better at an in-person one just because I think in virtual people kind of think, oh, well, you know, we're all just behind a computer. It's, you know, we're not really going to be networking anyway. And I think the people who did participate with us found out like, oh, you actually can network and you can meet some new people and it can be a joint experience. But I, uh, I, I really think that, uh, that we're going to do much better. Again, like, so in DC next year, we don't have an MOU in place yet, but we've you know, already talked to ASM somewhat about that. So we are looking forward to hopefully doing that again. And it being in ASM's hometown, so to speak, of Washington, DC, I'm hoping that it can really be a big event. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, I think we are all looking forward to those in-person interactions again. I know that the pandemic is winding down, but I feel like I'm still right. hibernating in my office. <laughs> I don't see a physical person every day, that's for sure. But I'm hoping towards the end of the summer, that's that's going to change. It, in terms of, you just asked about growing though. Um, it's still really mostly me who does who does everything. Um, my wife does help me out with, she has a business background. So she helps me out with some of the finances and like the tax stuff that we have to file and the business kinds of things. So she just, she help, helps me out with that, thankfully, because that is not my bailiwick. But um, besides that, it's, yeah, it's a lot of me. And so that, that starts to get, it would be nice to have the ability to kind of do more things and have more people involved, but you know, we, we don't have a lot of money and so I can't hire anybody. I, I don't like to ask people to work for free. It's enough to ask people to be a mentor because they're giving of their time, you know, we're really without compensation. We can't, we can't really pay them. So it's, it really is depending on the goodwill and like the grassroots at this point. So we would like to grow bigger. I would like to be involved in more conferences, more meetings. We'd like to be able to travel at the moment. We don't have enough money really to travel or anything like that, but that is something I would love to do. I'd love to go to different conferences besides ASM and, and get involved. What conferences do you hope to go to? Um, we were in some talks with ASV so American Society for Virology uh, last year. And of course they are virtual last year and this year. So that really kind of got put on hold. We actually did a small event with the American Society for Cell Biology back in December of 2019. Dr. Amanda Gunn ran that for us. I wasn't there, but it was very, very, <laughs> very shoestring on that one. We, we Again, we were not officially involved with the, with the organization at that point. But yeah, we'd like to go to that. I'd love to go to FEMS, you know, in Europe. I would like to do ISME. Um, there's there's a lot of other types of things I think this would be really great for. Um, I think a lot of it for me is that I have always been a 
general ASM general meeting slash micro person. So that's that's kind of my home meeting. But you know, I would definitely love to grow into some of those other those other meetings that are out there that I know people benefit from. So Joe, I wanted to ask, what do you get out of it? You put all this time and effort creating this organization. How does it serve you? What benefits does Binning Singletons provide you with? So Binning Singletons is really, for me, it's rejuvenated my involvement in the scientific community. So as I mentioned before, I've been at my job for over 20 years. So things don't change a lot there. I kind of see the same people all the time. Um, We are pretty isolated from the rest of our agency, both physically and just in what we do. So there's not a lot of interaction with other folks. We are, you know, we're trying to improve on that, but still it's, it's a little bit difficult. So doing something like Benning Singletons that I'm very passionate about and like really care and can throw myself into creativity, my, with, with creativity and passion, that's something I can't really do in my day job. Cause there's a lot of restrictions for what I can and can't do just because of where I work. And so this has kind of enlivened my career, kind of given me, you know, some, some extra juice, some more passion to, to keep doing what I'm doing. And I've met just some amazing people and I would like to keep meeting more amazing people. It's, it's been great for that. Like some, some of the people that I now can just like shoot a text to, you know, and ask a question of it three years ago would have just blown my mind. So that's been pretty great. And do you have any specific examples you can share with us about how bidding singletons has helped others either as a mentor or as a mentee? Yeah. So participants have reported, you know, just anecdotally having a much better time at microbe. Um, some of them who had even been to microbe before said that they had just exponentially better time when they were part of bidding singletons than when they went earlier, just because of the the sense of community, the group of people to hang out with. It just really kind of, you know, sometimes at the end of a meeting, you've now formed a group of people that you want to hang with if you went there by yourself. Well, having that at the start of the meeting just helps that grow even more. And so it's kind of like compounding interest, right? You just you just build this group of people and you feel more and more comfortable. A lot of people reported more traffic to their posters. Um, we did encourage people to go visit other Singleton's posters when we had this in real life. And we also did it virtually. And so people have reported that. A lot of people said their imposter syndrome really was kept at bay because they looked around at some of the other participants in the program. They're like, oh my God, that person's here. They feel like they don't fit in. Then they're like, oh, then that's cool. Because, you know, I thought that person had everything together. And it turns out, you know, they also feel the same way I do. So maybe I'm not such an imposter after all. Yeah, I think that's such an important aspect to kind of go into. Like everyone has imposter syndrome. We all feel like we're the singletons because we're not talking to enough people. But when you start talking to people, you realize we're all singletons. We all feel the same way. Right. Everyone's in the same boat, just doing what they can. We're all working with the resources that we have. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt and blow your whole train of thought there. No, no, no. That I that was that was pretty much that was pretty much the end of my thing. So one thing that is nice is I have heard from a lot of these people I still keep in touch with on Twitter and stuff. And you know, it's it's really helped. So this is going back to how it's helped me actually, is that I now have this group of people, some of whom were were singletons who I now reach out to for advice on things because they're experts in their area and I don't know, you know, I don't know anything about those things. And so if I need some help 
um, or somebody at work's like, hey, you know, we want to get into this. And I'm like, oh, right. I know this person who does that because they participate in this program with me. And so, and I think that's helped the singletons who participated in the past also getting some of that recognition, like, hey, I see you as an expert and somebody I need to go to, you know, kind of helps again with alleviating that, that feeling of, of imposter syndrome, because it's like, yeah, you know, what you, what you bring to the table is valuable and somebody needs it. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk more broadly about mentorship. All right, Joe, let's talk about mentorship. I think it's one of those things that no matter where you are in your career or what your career is, you can benefit from learning more about mentorship. But before we dive right into it, Joe, I wanted to ask you, do you have any mentors you'd like to shout out? I'd like to shout out back in 2013 when I told the story of going to ASM in Denver. The person that I followed out and bought me coffee was Dr. Holly Bick. And they were my my role model, really, for what a bidding singleton's mentor should be with all of the um, all of the advice and inviting me to things and making me feel like I was part of something instead of this, you know, hanger on. That was that was just awesome. And so uh, at that meeting, I also met Dr. Hillary Lappin Scott, who has been really a great sponsor for me. And then some mentors at my job. So Dr. Fred Genthner and Dr. Richard Devereaux are two of the scientists that I worked with a lot earlier in my career. And I actually still work with Dr. Devereaux and uh, my co-authors, of course, on the manuscript are Dr. Amanda Gunn and Dr. Denise Acob. And I go to them all the time for things. So um, they, they definitely have helped me with my writing. Um, Dr. Acob is just a phenomenal writer and editor. And so is Dr. Gunn, actually. I've, I've gone to them several times for, for help when I need to tighten something up. So yeah, I, I really appreciate them. We all need to acknowledge our mentors and the people that help us out a little bit more. So uh, I'm grateful for you for sharing that with everyone. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the different kinds of mentors that exist. Are they all the same? How can we classify them? How can we look at mentorship in a broad way? Yeah, I spoke about this at the World Microbe Forum in my talk. So these aren't really my original thoughts. I got a lot from Dr. Mindy Ingevic article. It's on the ASM website. And then Dr. Bronda Montgomery has an article in Sage Open, and I reference those a lot in my talk. But basically, simply speaking, there's there's traditional mentors. So this is like the formal long-term guidance on career development, you know, your scientific projects, work-life balance. That's really what most people think of when they think of mentors. But there's also coaches. So these are people who help you focus on a development or improvement of a particular skill, maybe an infrequent issue. And then sponsors who are you know, people who have who have accumulated some some capital, some political and scientific capital, and they are committed to the career development of an individual, and they use their influence to advocate for and advance um, mentees. So, in all these cases, there's like an objective, there's some communication, and there's a time frame, and you got to share those really for it to work. But I think, like coaches, for example, you know, if you need to learn a new technique, often. You'll go to sometimes your advisor, if you're still in school, will send you to a postdoc or somebody in a different lab, or maybe, you know, somebody is a lab technician, a bench scientist who is good at that technique. And you go learn from them for a week or two and you get that technique down. That person is 
acting as your coach for a little bit. It's not necessarily a long-term thing, but it is usually pretty intense. You work on that one thing and then that's kind of the, that's kind of the end. It doesn't mean you're not friends afterwards, but you don't necessarily have to be in a mentor mentee relationship after that. Um, And then the sponsors, it's really more of an infrequent contact. When I was trying to promote some of the stuff for bidding singletons for the world microbe forum, I reached out to Dr. Uh, Lappin Scott said, Hey, can you help promote this a little bit? Um, I need to get the word out. And, and she responded and, you know, that really helped. It gives us some credibility and it spends a little bit of her capital that she's accumulated to help me out. And so that was, you know, that, those are some examples of that. The traditional mentors, I think everybody kind of, kind of understands, but I, I do think there's some issues (laughs) with traditional mentors and um, we can get into that if you'd like. Yeah. Especially with those in academia, I feel there's a pretty broad gray line that exists in academic mentors that we could probably spend an entire podcast on discussing. But before we talk about the bad and the ugly, let's talk a little bit about the good. What makes a good mentor or what makes a good mentee? What are some characteristics that we should look for or some things that we should do in order to become better mentors or mentees? Okay, so I I think communication is the key. Communication is always the key, isn't it? To all of these mentor-mentee relationships. So my PhD advisor and I, I spoke a little bit earlier that I was in a PhD program in a med school and and uh, that we did not communicate very well and that relationship failed. So a lot of that was on me. You know, I could have communicated better, but they also were not the kind of person who really reached out and was thinking about helping you very often. You know, they, they kind of saw grad school as this monastery of knowledge and you kind of went in and that's what you did. And every now and then, you know, you might, might go see your superior and find out, you know, what, what was going on. So that, that relationship really was not a healthy one. I think a good mentor is committed to helping the mentee best achieve the mentee's goals and aspirations and not necessarily turning their mentee into another version of themselves, which is what I hear a lot of people complain about. And I think a good mentee puts in the work to figure out what it is they'd like to accomplish and communicate those needs to the mentor. If you don't let the mentor know that you have different goals in mind than they did, and that you're trying to maybe get into different things. Maybe you want to go into industry. Maybe you want to work for a nonprofit. Um, maybe you want to go into SciComm. That's not the path they took, obviously, because they're in academia, right? But if you can communicate to that, that to them, they should be able to help you out with that. And if they are not the best person for that, they can bring in some other people who can help you with those goals. And so also you need to be, as a mentee, I think you need to be willing to try some things that you maybe are uncomfortable with at first because your mentor has more experience, right? Like there's, they've been through some stuff and they oftentimes will have some good advice that maybe you wouldn't have thought of. And it maybe seems weird at first, but, or hard or difficult. But a lot of times, if you're willing to put in the work, you can, you'll find out that, you know, they really do have something, something good to offer. Um, Of course, that's all predicated on trust. If, if you don't believe that they have your best interests at heart and you feel like they're just giving you busy work, you're not going to approach it the same way. And, you know, then you have that, that breakdown of communication. So really communication is just, just so vital to all these relationships. 
So I'm kind of curious how black and white this mentor-mentee relationship has to be. Like, does it have to be an explicit conversation? Like, hey, Joe, I'd like you to be my mentor. Let's discuss what that means. Or is it more just something like you form these relationships and as certain things come up, you just tap on people and be like, hey, I need some help with this. Can, can you assist me right now? How defined does that mentor-mentee relationship need to be in order for it to be successful? I think for a lot of situations, in fact, I would say most situations, you actually do need to have that conversation. Somebody does need to know that you are looking to them for advice or help towards achieving a goal of yours. And they need to understand how much time you need from them. I mean, they need, yeah, they need to do a lot to help you out. And they might not have that time. And so if you don't ask and you don't have that conversation outright, you might feel like this person isn't living up to what you expected because they they can't necessarily give you as much time as you would have hoped. So I think that needs to be had. That conversation needs to be had. So like with the Benning Singleton's thing, we, you know, we have like kind of a month, maybe even less than that, where the mentors and the mentees are matched up. You know, we, we, two weeks, usually before the meeting, we would match them up. And then the duration of the, of the training, so to speak, is, is during the meeting and a little bit before. And that's kind of it, right? Like during that time, here's our goal. Here's the time frame, And here then communicate like, Hey, I need some help navigating the posters, or maybe I don't know how to talk to vendors or whatever. And so you can, you can get those things out in the open. I think, you know, somebody as a sponsor, that one is a little bit more of a, it doesn't have to be so much like, Hey, I need this. I need that. You can kind of go to a person that you already have a relationship with and ask them, you know, Hey, can you do this for me? And have that conversation ahead of time. Like, this is what I need from you. Are you willing to help me out? And those kinds of things with the traditional relationship of a, of the, of a, having a mentor, I think you really need to really have that conversation with, with your advisor, but also with, you know, maybe the postdocs in the lab, maybe the older PhD students say, look, you have more experience than me. I want to accomplish this. I see you doing this. Do you have some time to spend with me to, to help me out a little bit and kind of set those parameters? Because I think a lot of times people are disappointed when they, they don't get as much time from somebody as they think they should, but the other person maybe didn't know that that person expected that much time. So Yeah, I think that's such a good point that you just brought up, Joe. So much of communication errors happen because of this idea that you expect these expectations. You expect someone to give you a certain amount of attention, and then when you don't get it, you feel neglected. So many disputes, I think, could be eliminated just by having that little bit of communication up front of this is my expectations. What are your expectations? How do we find that middle ground? Are we on the same page? Now, I'm a big numbers person, and I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how many mentors someone should have. I think in a lot of times in our society or in our PhD journeys, we have these built-in systems for mentorship that often fail because there is an expectation that is not reached from one party or the other. 
when we get our PhDs, we often are paired or we choose a mentor, an advisor to help us throughout the scientific journey. We'll get a dissertation committee and those members may or may not help us with our research journey. Often we don't get career development mentors. (laughs) And this is, I think, true as well when we are in industry or we're in any certain career that we're in. You have a boss that kind of acts as a mentor, but obviously has their own incentives to move you forward. Should people go outside of these built systems in order to find mentorships? And how many should people sort of look to get? Yeah, I think you should. I think you need to build a network of mentors. Um, Brandon Montgomery talks about this in that article I, I noted earlier. With the individual folk-centered mentoring is like, it's a lot of it is on you to find those resources, to find the coaches, find somebody to teach you a technique, find somebody to teach you how to apply for a job. That person doesn't have to be your traditional advisor, so to speak. You know, finding sponsors, somebody who can help you get on a committee or involve you in a project or, you know, send some review articles your way, finding those people and communicating with them is is really key. And a lot of those people are looking for people to put on committees or to involve in projects, but they, you know, they only know so many people, right? And they, they don't necessarily have the time to go around and, and recruit. And they're going to kind of stick to the people that they know or that, you know, get recommended to them. So if you reach out and say, hey, I'd like you to think of me when you, when you talk about these things, that person could be a sponsor for you. And, I, and you should have several of those, I think, because you're going to want to probably do different kinds of things. And one person isn't, isn't going to be able to handle all of those different things. They're not going to be the best fit. So I think you should have several sponsors. I think you should have probably the most you should have is coaches, you know, learning techniques, specific skills, short-term duration, but, you know, kind of an intense thing. I think you're going to have more coaches really than anything else. And then if your advisor is helping you in a lot of things, sometimes you'll find that they have, you know, uh, a lab across the hall or somebody that's also in your either, you know, committee member or maybe in your department and maybe, you know, their students and you form a relationship with them and say, Hey, can you help me out with this kind of a thing? And that might be a thing you talk about with your advisor. You know, you don't want to make it look like you're going behind their back. Right. But at the same time, your advisor should help you kind of build out this network. It should not be solely dependent on them. It should be this, this big net that you're, you're getting help from all these different places. Right. So do you have any advice for people who might be looking to build that mentorship team? How can they spread that net, so to speak, and start creating mentor-mentee relationships? That's tough, right? (laughs) I recommend getting active in your community. So, you know, join Twitter or whatever social media you like, but Science Twitter is a really great place to do that. Um, I think if you follow and engage with the scientists that you admire, you'll find that a lot of times when you meet them in real life, they will be like, oh yeah, we talked on Twitter about this. And you've, you've already like, you've already gotten over that activation energy of meeting this person. And now you, you know, now you have a relationship already because you talked on Twitter. I would encourage people to attend local meetups. I know in the Boston area, for example, my friend Jeff Hannigan um, has some biotech meetups, at least before the pandemic, they used to have them, I think once a month. And, you know, people just kind of get together and talk about science and have a, you know, have a beer or socialize or whatever. And that's a great way to just meet a variety of people and get involved in the community. Um, If you're a student, 
or if you're even, you know, if you're a, an established scientist, join your student or branch chapter of your professional organization. So if you're like, if you like ASM, see if there's a student chapter at your school. If you're like me, you can like look around and say, okay, what's my regional chapter? Get involved, meet some people who are doing some things. They're going to, they're going to need help. And if they know you, they're going to reach out to you. And that's just only going to expand your network of people. And really the biggest advice again, is just to communicate. Like when you've made these contacts with people, if you expect something from them, or if you would like their help, you've got to communicate it. Yeah, I agree. I would say that particularly on Twitter, uh, I consider myself an introvert in, in real person, but on Twitter, a lot of people are online. A lot of people think I'm an extrovert. And I think it just does so much to be able to detach yourself physically and have sort of this online persona and just reach out to people and start connecting. And then when you do meet them in real person, it's it's less of a barrier. You don't feel so insecure. You're like, oh, you know me from the internet. You know I'm a weirdo. You know I'm <laughs> obsessed with talking about microbes. So when I meet people in real life now, I just can be myself and just be that weirdo that I am and totally embrace it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely encourage anyone out there who might be a little hesitant to jump online, definitely to jump on to Twitter. Academic Twitter is great. It's a super supportive community. Yes. I highly recommend it to anybody, anybody aspiring to be a science communicator or an academic or to just understand science a little bit more. Who was it that you just shout out there? Was it Jeff? Jeff Hannigan? Jeff is fantastic. He is awesome. In fact, at the that that dinner that I was having at ASM in Atlanta, Jeff and I were sitting next to each other having this discussion about how the how the meetings have gone bad and how they've gone well. And that really was the conversation with him that sparked this whole thing. So I, I think I have acknowledged him in our article just because of that conversation <laughs> at dinner. No, Jeff is Jeff is great. He's a phenomenal coder and a you know really good scientist and just even better person. He was in uh, he was in Pat Schloss's lab. He did a postdoc in Pat Schloss's lab, um, and then then went to Merck. So I want to jump back in to talking about mentorship a little bit more. I think up until this point, we've talked about it as a very binary thing, as a black and white aspect. You are a mentor or you are a mentee, but you can be both a mentor and a mentee. Can we talk a little bit about what your advice is for navigating these two different roles and when someone can say, I can be a mentor. I have that experience. I am capable of helping somebody else in this role. No, I think I think you absolutely can be both. In fact, I think you should be both. So there are definitely people for whom, you know, so if you're in a if you're an advisor for a lab, right? You're the PI and you have a bunch of people that work with you in your lab, you are occupying that traditional mentor role. But, you know, if you also have accumulated a lot of capital and you and I know each other and I have, you know, my little project that I would like some help with and, you know, could you promote it or could you give me some advice? In that case, that person would be acting really as a sponsor, right? And I, on the other hand, as somebody who's, you know, receiving that mentorship in the lab have often found my, so I'm a, I'm a staff scientist. I don't have a PhD. I, you know, do a lot of lab work and I do a lot of data analysis. 
and I usually work for several different PIs. And what happens oftentimes is when we get new either students or new employees is they will bring in their set of skills, but maybe they don't have, you know, some particular techniques that we need. And then in that case, I'm basically their coach, right? Like I teach them for, you know, over a two week period, maybe like, here's how we do this. Here's what you need to look out for. Here's some troubleshooting. And then, you know, even once they're doing it on their own, they can kind of come back to me like, Hey, I ran into this problem. What should I do? So in that case, I'm an acting as a mentor to that person. And I think it, that just kind of continues the more, the longer your career goes, I think the more it maybe shifts up, you know, so you're getting more into that sponsor, more traditional mentor role for most people instead of like the coaching kind of a role. But I still think you, you end up doing all of them really as long as you, you know, once you've, once you've really gotten some expertise at anything, really, you can be a mentor to somebody else who doesn't have that, right? You, you're just your life experience or, you know, your technical experience. Um, you have the ability to help mm-hmm. somebody else. So. Yeah. Right. So you mentioned this a little bit about before, but I want to talk a little bit more explicitly about it. I think we all have experience But sometimes what gets in the way is imposter syndrome or self-doubt or this inability to see how great you are. How do you suggest people sort of overcoming that barrier? Or I also think it can be really hard if you identify as an introvert. Do you have any specific advice for introverts as far as navigating the seas of mentorship? Yeah, um, if you're an introvert, I think you should like, draft an extrovert for those kinds of things and figure out like, okay, how does this person do this? Kind of see what they do and, and kind of fake it till you make it (laughs) honestly. Um, And I guess with, with respect to imposter syndrome, like I still have imposter syndrome and I've been doing my job for 20 years and I still feel like one day somebody's going to come in and say, you've been faking it this whole time. You're out of here. So I don't know if that ever really goes away. Um, in fact, I'm like really wary of people who say they don't have imposter syndrome. I know a few people who say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And I immediately like, I'm like, that's. <laughs> yeah, well, you're either a robot or you're a liar. <laughs> Everyone has imposter syndrome at one point or another. Yeah, you're, you're a liar or you just don't have any understanding of yourself, right? <laughs> so, so I think recognizing though that you have something to offer to somebody that makes you eligible to be a mentor. Like you don't need to achieve some external level that you're like, Oh, only these people can be mentors. I have to have a PhD or I have to be a supervisor or whatever. Like, no, that's, that's not the case at all. When, when we had our bidding singletons thing in 2019, we had a PhD student who acted as a mentor during that thing. We also had a professor who was a singleton, right? Like it, Everybody kind of needs help and a lot of people can help others in different ways that maybe don't look like the traditional relationship, but are still valuable and helpful. And I think coming to recognize that in yourself and being willing to say, Hey, I can, I can do that for somebody. And then making yourself available again, that communication to somebody who might need that because as somebody who has needed mentoring in the past, if somebody kind of gave off the vibe that they were not willing to be a mentor, I, you know, I didn't reach out to that person to help me, but if somebody, you know, puts out there that they are willing to help, 
that's that's a huge huge step for getting people to to have a good relationship as a, in a mentor mentee relationship. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's excellent advice. And I know we are coming up to the end of our interview. So I want to ask you just one more question. Okay, well, maybe two or three, but just a few more. So a lot of people are in situations where their PI or their boss or anyone that they look to as a mentor becomes absent. They're not there. They're not available to assist you as you need as a mentee. What advice do you have for people who are in these situations with mentors that become absent? Yeah, there's recent literature that shows labs where postdocs and senior PhD students were involved in laboratory discussions that the junior PhD students actually made four times the growth in skills that that those where only the advisor was involved. Wow. So even if your advisor is involved, I think you need to communicate and form relationship with others in the lab or if, you know, if it's not a if it's not an academic situation, others that you work with. So not necessarily your direct supervisor only, but other people who maybe have some more experience than you do and, you know, seek out those colleagues who specialize in different things that can give you a fresh perspective and can help you grow. Because if you put it all on this one person, you're just not going to have as many, basically you're not going to have as many at bats, right? Like the more times, the more swings you have at it, the the more chances you have that, you know, something's going to hit. And so, yeah, I encourage people to just build out that network. And because if you put it all on one person, it's really not fair to them or you because not one person can do that for everybody. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So I was just sort of thinking as you were saying that, that, that by putting all this pressure on the PI, we are creating this power dynamic. Instead of saying, oh, I can go to the PhD student. I can go to the postdoc for help who's only a few steps above me. We put the PIs and put all this pressure on the PIs to be this sole source of infinite wisdom. We put them on this pedestal, creating the power dynamic and not allow ourselves to grow even with our close peers that have the information and can assist us. And and, and sometimes, you know, those are people too, right? Like they might be having a bad year. (laughs) They might be having a bad week. It might be they have something else going on in their life and they feel like, oh my God, I'm failing my student. And they might do like what some of us do, which is just avoid the situation and not meet with that student as often. Right. And it's not even it's not even malicious. It's just human nature. Sometimes that happens. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. We always have to look at anything from both sides. That's probably the next biggest communication error that people look is forgetting to look on the other side and asking, OK, what is the perspective of whoever I'm trying to communicate with and, and why am I not receiving what I expect? Well, Joe, I want to thank you so, so much for being part of our show. We didn't get to my favorite microbe, which I thought was funny. Oh, yeah. We ask that on every show. Joe, what is your favorite microbe? I don't have one. What? You don't have one? No. Really? <laughs> I. What, you just love them all? No, I don't. Huh. No. Wow. Like, no, I don't. I don't have a favorite color either, though. Like, mm, me neither. I'm weird. I'm weird that way. Like, I, I like stuffed microbes. Me too. So, like, when my 13 year olds were born, I just kept buying <laughs> stuffed microbes. <laughs> and so they would like bring their germies to show and tell, which I thought was amazing. Like, my, my oldest, she wanted to bring 
syphilis to school. Oh, no. Because it's like pink and cute. And we're like, <laughs> yeah, no, you have to bring something else. Yeah. Like, how about chicken box? Why don't you bring chicken Yeah, box? that's a much safer one. So, yeah, but no, I don't, I don't have a favorite. I don't have a favorite microbe. Wow. I, I'm weird that way. So like, like I told you, like I, you know, I kind of fell into microbiology because I did a summer thing and that's what the guy happened to do. Mm-hmm. And so then when it was like apply to grad school, I'm like, oh, here's this microbiology program in the college of medicine. And I was like, maybe I can go ahead and get my medical degree too. Right. Right. And then it was just like, I just kept doing micro and suddenly I'm a microbiologist. <laughs> it's not, but it wasn't because I was like, oh man, this thing is amazing. It's just like, it's just kind of what I've done. And I'm also like, when it got to that work-life balance thing I was talking about with my advisor, like I like to leave work at work. I do not generally think about microbes or any of that stuff when I'm at home. Mm-hmm. It's a good plan. Or when I, you know, now that I've been home for a year, when I <laughs> turn off my computer, it's, that's it. Like it, I don't think about it anymore, except when my brain just does it on its own. But man, I wish I could be like that. Like I, that separation to me has always been really important. And I just think that's just kind of like how I'm built. Like right. my passion and all the excitement is really like, so Benning Singletons or before I used to like make mix CDs for my friends <laughs> like in the early 2000s. And I had a zine that I sent out to all my, like that kind of stuff, like gets me jazzed up. Like to me, the other stuff is work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can see that. And like work is fine. And I, you know, I enjoy it enough, but like, it's also still work. Like once, once I can retire, I probably won't think about microbes very often. Yeah. I wish I was like that. I'll sometimes go to bed and wake up at two 30 in the morning. I'm like, you know, it'd be an awesome blog post. (laughs) Yeah. I remember I sat with Kat Milligan Meyer and, uh, Heather, Heather Hendrickson. She's a, she's in New Zealand. We were at, at ASM the first, first night before the thing even started at ASM in in, um, San Francisco. And like everyone was going around the table talking about their favorite microbes. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have one. They're like, oh, you love them all, right? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> they have the same response as me. I was like, one thing that's really nice is when you kill them, they don't scream. So like, you know. That's true. It's like doing tests on mice. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so my lab, my lab, I'm sorry, I keep talking. I should shut up. My lab in grad school was across the parking lot from an ape lab. Ah. And they were so loud. And I was just like, I, I can't handle this. Like, yeah. you know, when I kill a tube of rickettsia and I get their DNA. Nothing. It's fine. Yeah. It's, you know, nobody hears anything. It's fine. They don't scream. They don't hurt. It's no problem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of a big softy that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am as well. Well, Joe, I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. It really was quite a delight. And I think everyone is really going to enjoy this episode. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, I wrote a post for the FEMS microblog that is out now. And so please go check that out. We hope to be back at ASM and other meetings in the next year, year plus. And yeah, any meeting that wants to work with us, please reach out. I think what we do is really important and I think it's very helpful. And any organizations that would like to sponsor our little nonprofit, we could really use you. Um, you know, our current budget, you know, help, helps us keep our website going. We have a, a Zoom account and, you know, we can send some swag to our participants, which they really enjoy. But, you know, we'd love to be able to travel to more meetings and help more people. And so that's, that would be what I would plug is like, help us help others. <laughs> 
Well, my Caribbean Nation, that's the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you continue listening. You can find many of those references that Joe was talking about in our show notes. And you can find Joe and Benning Singletons at B Singletons on Twitter. As always, you can find us at themicrobegales.com. And please consider supporting the show by donating to our Ko-fi page at ko-fi.com slash microbegales. And please give us a follow on social media if you feel so inclined at microbegales. That's M-I-C. R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. And we hope you and your microbes stay healthy and happy until next week. Bye.